1: Fiction, nonfiction podcast from the Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed, except horrible tweets from our former president, or on the evening news, has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant.
2: And I'm Vivi Ganesh Onondon, also known as Sugi, author of the novel, Love Marriage.
1: So if you had been selected to read poetry at a presidential inauguration when you were 22, year old, 22 years old, what president would it have been?
2: It would have been W.,
1: Oh <laughs> well, we're stuck in the same deal because mine would have been H.W. George H.W. Bush in '88, which would have sucked for me and for him. I mean, I I went back and looked at. I have a journal entry I remember of like bemoaning the disaster of the George H.W. Bush presidency, which seems like it wouldn't have been such a disaster. Like he's now a, a like guy like. Why well, I wish the why can't the Republicans be more like him?
2: Well. On the other hand, you would have been the perfect writer to speak at the George H. W. Bush inauguration. You waspy, white guy, Midwestern Princeton graduate.
1: That's right. I was. I was at Princeton when that when he was elected, and I wrote that in like the biology library where I worked to make money. And 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 those are the people who elected, who voted for Bush, which is why it was cool to see Amanda Gorman, who's the woman that we're talking about. Read her completely badass poem at Biden's inauguration, because not only is she way better at poetry than I was when I was 22, or will ever be, she also represents two of the most important groups that went for the Biden-Harris ticket in the last election, Black voters and women.
2: Which is why in today's episode, which we're recording the weekend after the inauguration, we want to talk about what those two groups of voters hope to see from the new administration in terms of policy. In the second half of the show, we'll be talking about this with Kawhi Strong-Washburn, as well as about his debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors. But first, we're excited to talk to former Poet Laureate and current all-around great person, Tracy K. Smith. Tracy is the two-time Poet Laureate of the United States and author of The Body's Question, winner of the Cave Canem Poetry Prize, Duende, winner of the James Laughlin Award of the Academy of American Poets, and Life on Mars, winner of the 2012 Pulitzer Prize, Her memoir, Ordinary Light, was a finalist for the National Book Award and her most recent collection, Weight in the Water, won the Anisfield-Wolf Book Prize and came out in 2018. She teaches creative writing at Princeton University. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, nice to see
3: you. Hi, it's good to see you.
1: (laughs) You and I were together four years ago uh, on the day after Donald Trump won the presidency. You were doing an event here in Kansas Do you remember that?
3: I actually remember that day really well. Um, Part of what we talked about was history and redlining, and um, I think it probably came up because there was this awful feeling I at least had that something was trying to yank us backward in time to um, a bleak uh, moment in our past.
1: I mean, I gotta say, I felt the same way, but it was worse. Than even I imagined it was going to be. I feel like if, if this period of time has been just un, just unbelievable. Uh, yeah, well, it
3: was kind of like but... a sprint. Sorry, it was yeah. like a sprint backward in a way. I kept thinking, oh, it's going to be this steady march of four years, and we're just going to have to dig in. But I think we all got hauled back in these really sinister ways.
2: I think that's really well put. Um, it did feel like living in some sort of anachronism or like the worst kind of time travel you could possibly imagine um i was in iowa city i was guest teaching at the workshop that semester and i i remember watching the returns at the workshop and then walking home with another visiting faculty member who said i'm not gonna let you walk home by yourself (laughs) after that and then waking up the next morning and just shuddering um and going outside and seeing on the sidewalk someone had written, we can do it. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. Yeah. But Witt and I decided that this should not be, thank God, a retrospective episode about the Trump era. It's a forward-looking episode about the Biden-Harris administration, about which I do have so much hope and excitement. Um, and to that end, I'd like to start with an essay you wrote about Kamala Harris back in October. And I wonder if you'd read that to us.
3: Sure. Absolutely. In the months since the killing of George Floyd, I've been stirred by the many statements of determination that have arisen out of the movement for racial justice in America. One call is for institutions and communities to do more to hear and heed the perspectives of black people and people of color in their midst. These voices and perspectives, our voices, our perspectives, are key to harvesting the many opportunities alive within American democracy. But our nation must do the work of drawing near and listening. When the news reached me in August that Senator Kamala Harris had been selected as Joe Biden's running mate, it struck me that the Democratic Party was ready to listen and to learn. Harris's courage Brilliance, energy, and her decades of experience have long qualified her to help lead America forward out of our current national moment. And her perspective as a woman of color is critical to doing the work of helping all of us heal from the strife of racism and racial division. Knowing that Harris's voice will be central to this dialogue makes me believe that our American union can be strengthened and deepened. As Attorney General of California, Harris secured a $20 billion settlement for California homeowners faced with predatory lending. She created the Open Justice Database, which made criminal justice data accessible and transparent to the public. As a senator, she has held politicians to an exacting standard of accountability. She's also shown us that leadership is not static— that it requires a willingness to evolve and to meet ever-changing circumstances with the capacity to adapt and to grow. These are the capacities by which nations not only survive, but become stronger, wiser, and more just. These are the capacities we need in our particular moment in human history. But history affirms that the work of speaking up can be difficult, even dangerous, It has never been easy for black women to lead in America. Those who have done so have endured great resistance and even great personal risk. Unfounded as they are, today's partisan attacks against Harris belong to an age-old tradition of threat and intimidation designed to silence and distort voices of truth and dissent but I'm firm in my certainty that American democracy continues to stand because of the sustaining work of Black women like Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, Shirley Chisholm, Kamala Harris, and the host of others who've met the demands of their time with a selfless willingness to further the project of freedom and progress.
1: Thank you very much. I really love that list of heroic black American women at the end of that passage. And I'm sure there are many more people you would put on that list if Vogue hadn't given you a word (laughs) count. For instance, Stacey Abrams, who, uh, though you didn't know this when you wrote the essay, would be a crucial figure in giving the Biden-Harris administration a win in Georgia and electing two Democratic senators from that state.
3: Yeah, and I mean, the list, even as I imagine it, extends beyond people who hold political office to people who are doing that work in the spaces that they occupy. You know, I could imagine adding the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement to that list and and many others, of course, too.
2: And you say at the top of the essay that our institution and communities have to, and I'm quoting here, do more to heed the perspectives of Black people and people of color in their midst. I think that's always been true just in terms of morality and social justice. Uh, but leaders like Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams are now real power brokers in the Democratic Party, and voters of color were crucial to Biden's primary and his victory in the election. And so Democrats really can't win elections without those those voting blocks. Um, so what should Joe Biden and Kamala Harris be doing in practical terms to heed the perspectives of Black people and people of color?
3: Well, I like a lot of what Biden and Harris are proposing um, thinking about raising the minimum wage, taking COVID seriously as a nation, um, rethinking police oversight and accountability. But I'm also really serious when I say listening is something that's important. I think that leaders um, of every kind of institution have to make some kind of priority to sit down and listen to the people who have long been misunderstood or, or ignored. Um, I, I imagine something like a listening tour of America, um, where, where leaders go into spaces and communities um, where black and brown people live, and, um, and letting those voices shed light on some of the policy concerns that, that are important. Um, I feel like our vocabulary as a nation can't change in adequate ways if we're not drawing upon actual people's voices, stories, and um, and the urgencies that characterize their lives.
1: I feel like that minimum wage is gonna be a big deal. So many people have to work and live barely surviving and, 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 and making almost double in some cases it seems like it would be really helpful.
3: It would, and I mean, what's also kind of shocking is how <laughs> the distance still will be between somebody who's making $15 an hour, and what we imagine life in this, this nation is supposed to feel like. I love that
2: idea of a listening tour. And it, it just strikes me, um, I was earlier in a meeting with a bunch of other activists and was missing very much the energy and trust building of in person meetings. I mean, of all the reasons that the GOP and the Trump administration had to not take COVID seriously. I mean, we, we literally can't sort of, we can't meet in person, we, which is a way of organizing. Yeah, the longer that it takes for them to address the pandemic, uh, the harder that kind of organizing is going to be. Do you think that that sort of listening tour? To I mean, in some ways, these sort of virtual conversations, like it's great that three of us are connected in three different places.
3: Well, I've been teaching virtually for the last, you know, whatever, almost a year now. And it has its disadvantages, obviously, but it's also fostered a really different dynamic, which feels much more like actual proximity or intimacy with my students and, you know, with the other people that I've had to interact with in this way. And when I think about it, I used to use FaceTime or, or something like this, talking to friends and close family, you know, sitting in bed at night and talking to people in a, in a really honest way. Now we're using these same platforms to do other kinds of, of work. And I think some of that vulnerability, some of that um, spontaneity um, kind of comes through in these other contexts. That could be a real um, advantage. And maybe maybe that kind of communication can be one of the durable um, impacts of, of covid
1: Maybe there could also be some listening from the media. Do you remember how, right after Trump was elected, there was all that it became there's so many that it became a joke that, oh, here's our here's a Trump person in a diner that we're going to interview and find out what they're really thinking and why they elected this man. But, you know, communities of color and women of color could also be interviewed, you know, and ask why well why why did they care about this election? why why did uh, why did they vote
3: for Biden Harris? I haven't seen that piece, and I wonder what a piece would look like. That brings people who have different perspectives, who voted differently, together into a space that's not combative, that's not a platform for talking um, in sound bites. You know about the opinions that have been bolstered by social media, but like, what does your day look like? You know, what what are you worried about, or what are you looking forward to in the the coming six months? Um, somehow, that kind of bridge building is also going to be critical, right, to to whether or not we're able to to move forward as a union
1: hey this is Whitney breaking in here to say that our esteemed producer Andrea Tudhope worked on a show just like the one Tracy is discussing called America Amplified election 2020 it was a six-part talk show with host Rose Scott we'll put links to it in the show notes it was excellent and I totally should have mentioned it here so I'm mentioning it now I want to talk right now about the question of accountability um That the Biden administration is going to have to deal with eight senators and 139 congressional representatives voted against certifying the results of the 2020 election, including my senator here in Missouri, Josh, lovely man, Hawley. Um, The Senate is going to vote on Trump's impeachment. Uh, Representative Mickey Sherrill has said that members of Congress led some of the insurrectionists through the Capitol for reconnaissance before the actual storming of the Capitol. But Biden has been notably distant from the impeachment push and wary of the idea that his administration should prosecute Trump. So what do you think is the right approach from the point of view of these important constituencies we've been discussing?
3: Well, I can understand why as a candidate, he, he was distancing himself from that, that conversation. But I hope that um, he gets a little bit closer to it. Um, I also hope the Senate does impeach him because it, it really is a way of saying never again. You know, we're not going to play this foolish game of lies and power um, and some fantasy of conspiracy again. We're past it. Um, I don't know how realistic that hope is. But when I think about um, reconciliation in other contexts, other nations like South Africa or Rwanda, um, it seems like it's both been about naming in transparent language the sins, the wrongs, the crimes. Um, I think it's also been about allowing the aggressors to acknowledge their complicity in, in these awful things and then take the really interesting step of learning to forgive themselves, maybe even making that process public when it's happened. Um, I've been moved by, um, you know, I think maybe it was a New York times magazine article that I read years ago uh, about this process in Rwanda where of course it was neighbors, um, who were, who were committing heinous acts against one another and who had to continue living next to each other. And so that process was like at the skin level, but I think there's a version of that, that we need to find our way to, I really like the vocabulary that Biden has been using um, he's used words like love and the soul, um, which aren't really political terms, but I've often felt that they're better terms than tolerance, um, you know, better terms than you know what we usually think of as defining our, our character or our our determination as, as a group. And so maybe letting some of this stuff get in, um, maybe it'll maybe it'll be um possible somehow. I I love um, the vocabulary of the possible as it applies to art making, you know, in some ways, I get to write a poem and go up into that space. Um, But I'm really curious about what it looks like in the nuts and bolts and, and how it gets actually sold to people who are, who are voting. One of the most
2: infuriating and saddening images from the past few weeks were the pictures of men carrying Confederate flags inside the Capitol building, which, such a desecration. And it made me think of your 2018 collection, Wait in the Water, where you have this whole section of poems that are taken only from the letters that Black Union troops or their family members wrote during the Civil War. Did you think about those troops too?
3: Absolutely. Um, I thought about them. I also thought about um, like senators, Black senators who were serving the nation during Reconstruction, like Hiram Revels and Blanche um, Bruce. And um, in a lot of ways, the, what those rioters represented was uh, the very same force that undid Reconstruction, that brought about the rise of the KKK, um, that you know perpetuated this sense of this lost cause. Um, and it breaks my heart to think that that's alive at this moment. In, in our nation, and that it will take some work to, if it's even possible, and I hope that it is, um, convince people to let go of the need to restore isn't quite the right word because I don't think it ever existed, but step into a version of dominance, um, power, and um, you know, subjugation of others that I think sits at the heart of these goals, the goal of, like, white supremacy. Um, I think, you know, my generous reading is there are people who feel so disenfranchised that, that that's the only kind of justice they can imagine. Um, but it's terrifying at the same time. And it's terrifying that not only here, but in other parts of the world, there's this real backlash toward, toward these kinds of movements.
1: Biden did use the term white supremacy in the inauguration, which I'm sure is the first time that's been used. And I think that kind of language is probably good, but it's kind of what we're fighting over because Trump did also have that executive order about how you can teach about race in America, his like way of opposing the 1776 commission, right? That was an opposed to the 1619 commission. And this is explicitly an ideological battle over how we think about race in America.
3: It's also this really explicit example of language whose purpose is to silence and obfuscate and what is exciting about Biden saying white supremacists at the inaugural address is that is plain transparent unmistakable language and it's a maybe it's a way of opening the curtain and saying this stuff is real
1: I want to talk about regulation (laughs) (laughs) it's not something that usually you talk to poets about um, at least in my experience um And it may not even traditionally be thought of as an an issue that's important to black voters or to women voters. But when you say, when you think of the poisoning of the water in Flint, Michigan, for instance, that's an issue that does matter to those groups, particularly black women whose children were poisoned there. And that's why I loved your poem, Watershed, which is also in uh, Weight in the Water, which is in essence a poem about regulation.
3: I wondered if you could read to us from that. Oh, sure. Um, It's a long poem. I'll read an excerpt of, and it's um, it extends from an, an article that I read by Nathaniel Rich about um, PFOA, um, a chemical that DuPont used and I'm sure other companies used in things like Teflon. It's perfluoroctanoic acid. It's incredibly carcinogenic. And um, DuPont was dumping it in water streams um, long after they knew the damage that it caused. They were also continuing to use it. Um, I wasn't surprised, but I was, I was troubled and outraged. This is a poem that draws from Rich's article and its language, but it also draws from another strange source, um, the narratives of people who have experienced near-death experiences, which isn't like, oh, I was almost hit by a bus, but I was hit by a bus and I flatlined for 90 seconds. And during that time, I went to another place and I had a profound encounter D's first husband had been a chemist. When you worked at DuPont in this town, you could have everything you wanted. DuPont paid for his education, secured him a mortgage, paid a generous salary, even gave him a free supply of PFOA. He explained that the planet we call Earth really has a proper name, has its own energy, is a true living being was very strong, but has been weakened considerably, which she used as soap in the family's dishwasher. I could feel Earth's desperate situation. Her aura appeared to be very strange, made me wonder if it was radioactivity. It was bleak, faded in color, and its sound was heart-wrenching. Sometimes her husband came home sick. Fever, Nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, Teflon flu, an emergency hysterectomy, a second surgery. I could tell the doctor everything he did upon my arrival, down to the minute details of accompanying the nurse to the basement of the hospital to get the plasma for me. Everything he did, while also being instructed and shown around in heaven. Clients called R to say they had received diagnoses of cancer or that a family member had died. W, who had cancer, had died of a heart attack. Two years later, W's wife died of cancer. They knew this stuff was harmful, and they put it in the water anyway. I suspect that Earth may be a place of education. PFOA detected in American blood banks, blood or vital organs of Atlantic salmon, swordfish, striped mullet, gray seals, common cormorants, Alaskan polar bears, brown pelicans, sea turtles, sea eagles, California sea lions, Laysan albatrosses on a wildlife refuge in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean. Viewing the myriad human faces with an incredible, intimate, and profound love. This love was all around me. It was everywhere. But at the same time, it was also me. We see a situation that has gone from Washington Works. All that was important in life was the love we felt. To statewide, all that was made... Said, done, or even thought without love was undone to everywhere it's global in my particular case, God took the form of a luminous, warm water. It does not mean that a luminous, warm water is God. it is just that for me. It was experiencing the luminous, warm water that I felt the most connected with the eternal.
1: Thank you very much. I mean, I I thought about so many things in that poem that, you know, like the part where it says, uh, all that was made, said, done, or even thought without love was undone. I feel a little bit like that's what Biden's doing with all these executive orders.
3: That he did. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's funny to think about, you know, okay, that poem is is a response to questions of regulation, um, but it does dwell in those two different disparate vocabularies, one of which is extremely relevant, and the other, I think, is also extremely relevant, the sense that our perspective, if we're willing or if we're given no choice, can be made much larger and comprehending and that there is a, a regulatory quality perhaps to looking at ourselves from a different kind of distance and actually being honest about what we do and you know the fallibility of it
1: I mean I I just regulation is not a thing that politicians talk about enough because for years I think the Republicans have said that deregulation is the thing that we want and then Democrats kind of went over on it cuz you know, financial deregulation was something that Clinton engineered, right, and that caused our last crisis. And I, I want Biden to put in regulations. I want him to regulate things because you know it's not safe if it's not regulated. And and Trump was was getting rid of that regulations, water regulations, EPA, all that stuff was under threat.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a really kind of like crass and blatant way of prioritizing profit. Um, and I just you know we talk so much about upward mobility. I, I still do believe that a lot of the people who voted for Trump voted for him because they had some sort of a pipe dream that he was going to make them rich. But I think we also know that that cannot be you know, the driving um, force of our decision making and that it has these awful effects upon the health and well-being of all of us when we're only thinking about our own private uh, bottom line.
2: So speaking of Trump voters, one of the lessons of this election, we're told, is that rural voters who went for Trump are exactly the kind of people who stormed the Capitol and are totally unreachable for Democrats. And as Poet Laureate, you traveled across America hosting poetry readings and conversations in rural communities, uh, a project that led to the anthology American Journal 50 Poems for Our Time. Was that what you saw on
3: your travels? No. I mean... I visited places where I know the values and the you know the, the voting are, are different from how I, how I see myself and, and the country. But I met people. I met people who were um, kind, attentive, hospitable, and willing to talk in very intimate, vulnerable terms about love, death, hope, fear. Um, through the vehicle, of course, of poetry, which brings us to those those kinds of big big topics, really easily and really quickly. Um, I like that poetry also discourages you from um, yelling. <laughs> it discourages you from drawing recourse to these like prepackaged ideas that do give sometimes a lot of ballast to our our strongly held convictions and opinions. So we were in spaces. And I was, you know, a stranger with a group of people from the Library of Congress, and we were just sitting and talking together in voices that I really hope we can find a way of, of replicating um, and, and using in, in more and different contexts. I know um, there are conditions under which some of the very same people who might have been cheering on that mob would feel differently. Um, about this country, about the people that don't look like them. I felt that way when I was traveling. Like, I know if if we changed the terms of this uh, encounter, we could get to a really ugly place. But I was with people who were willing to um, maintain that sense of, of reverence, safety, curiosity. And um, again, I keep wanting to say hospitality because that's what I felt. Um maybe we should also think about what it would feel like to to be the hosts those of us who live in blue states and in cities of um of guests who we know are different from us but have something important to say That's an interesting way to put it
2: Um and in the wake of the inauguration this week I think you know one of the voices so many of us were excited about was Amanda Gorman. And I think, you know, it would be malpractice or malpodcasting, maybe, not to ask you two questions. Um, so, first, you're a former poet laureate, and she's our first ever youth poet laureate.
3: What did you think? I was thrilled. I was moved. I was emotional. Um, when I did my very first reading at the Library of Congress as poet laureate, Amanda opened the evening. And I, I was so grateful to have her voice and her spirit in that space. Um, And to be reminded that poetry is a living thing that builds people and communities up and that it can also be a vehicle for um, asking hard questions of ourselves and of, of our nation. She reminded us that democracy, true democracy, is a dream that we have not yet as a nation attained and that that's, you know, that's this goal that's on the on the immediate horizon And, of course, she embodies that, too, because she's 22 years old. She's a young black woman. She's one of the most vulnerable in this nation in many ways. And for Biden to select her and give her that space, which she so beautifully and movingly held, um, I think that was a real, it felt like a form of promise making to me. So my second question for you. Will Kamala Harris run in 2024 or 2028? And can she win? Well, I think the answer to the second question is yes. Um, the answer to the first cut question is, you know, I hope is yes. If if Joe doesn't feel like doing that. But, of course, there's a lot standing between us, you know, the, the now of, of the question and the then that we're imagining. And I hope that it really is about taking those those hard, big, and, like, Firm steps forward. A lot will, will ride upon that, and a lot will ride upon the choices they make in, in reaching, reaching to, you know, the other voters in this nation.
1: Well, speaking about communicating across distances, you do have a poem that is specifically called Political Poem in Wade in the Water, and we would like for you to read from that to close us out.
3: Sure. Um, when I first wrote this poem, it had a different title. And I read it in Washington, D.C. in, I think, December of 2016. And it, it occurred to me that this was a political poem. Political Poem. If those mowers were each to stop at the whim, say, of a greedy thought, and then the one off to the left were to let his arm float up, stirring the air with that wide, slow, underwater gesture, meaning, hello, and you there, aimed at the one more than a mile away to the right. And if he, in his work, were to pause, catching that call by sheer wish, and send back his own slow, one-armed dance, meaning, yes, and here, as if threaded to a single long nerve, before remembering his tool and shearing another message into the earth, letting who can say how long graze past until another thought or just the need to know might make him stop and look up again at the other, raising his arm as if to say something like, Still and oh and then to catch the flicker of joy rise up along those other legs and flare into another bright yes that sways a moment in the darkening air. Their work would carry them into the better part of evening, each mowing ahead and doubling back, then looking up to catch sight of his echo, sought and held, in that instant of common understanding. The God and speed of it, coming out only after both have turned back to face the sea of yet and slow. If they could, and if what glimmered like a fish were to dart back and forth across that wide, wordless distance, the day, though gone, would never know the ache of being done. If they thought to, or would, or even half wanted, their work, the humming human engines pushed across the grass, and the grass, blade after blade assenting, would take forever. But I love how long it would last.
1: Listeners, we encourage you to pick up Wade in the Water or any of Tracy's other award winning collections.
2: Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks
3: for having me.
1: Next, we're excited to have Kavai Strong Washburn join us. Kavai was born and raised on the Hamakua coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. His work has appeared in Best American Non-Required Reading, McSweeney's, and Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, among other outlets. He was a 2015 Tin House Summer Scholar and a 2015 Breadloaf Work Study Scholar. He now lives with his wife and daughters in Minneapolis. Too bad he's not living in Kansas City, but it's the second best city in America. Uh, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, his first novel, has been long listed for the Penn Jean Stein Book Award, the Penn Open Book Award, and the Penn Hemingway Award. Kavai, welcome to the show.
4: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: It's great to have you with us. Uh, Minneapolis is the best city, but uh, moving on. I wonder if you could start us off by reading from the passage that gives your novel its plot and title.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess just a, a quick preface of the this specific section. The this this story is about a family, and at this stage in their lives, the entire family is living in Hawaii on the Big Island. And they are struggling economically. They've gone through some pretty rough times and they decide to take a... A cruise together the kind of thing that a lot of tourists would do they decided to go on a glass bottom boat ride together and this scene comes in at the tail end of that glass bottom boat ride your head was bobbing like a coconut in the ocean you were getting smaller and farther away and the water was hissing and spanking the boat i don't remember anyone saying much of anything except the captain calling out from upstairs just keep pointing we're turning just keep pointing your head went under and the ocean was flat and clean again There was a song playing from the speakers, a tinny, stupid-sweet Hawaiian cover of More Than Words, which I still can't listen to, even though I liked it once. The engines churned. The captain was talking from the wheel upstairs, asking Terry to keep pointing. Terry was the one who'd thrown the life preserver that was floating empty in the waves, moving away from where I'd seen your head. I was tired of being told to point, being told to wait, so I said something to Terry. He made a face. Then his mouth was moving under his mustache, words back at me. And the captain was calling again from above. Your father started in too, all four of us saying things. I think I finished talking with something that made Terry start, so that his face flushed around his sunglasses. I saw myself in those mirrored lenses, me darker than I thought I was, which I remember made me happy, and my shoulders from basketball, and that I'd stopped squinting my eyes. Then my feet were up on the railing, and Terry's eyebrows were raised, and he started to open his mouth at me. He reached for me. I think your father did too but I leapt into the big empty ocean. I hadn't been swimming long when the sharks passed under me. I remember them first as dark blurs, that the water told me the weight of those animals, a shove of wake against my legs and belly. They passed me and all four of their fins punched the surface, knives on the summit of dark swells, cutting for you. When they reached where your head had been, the sharks dove under. I started to swim after them, but the distance might as well have been to Japan. I dunked once to try and see. Underwater, there was nothing but a vague darkness and froth where the sharks were, other dark colors, pink and chummy ropes rising from the froth. I knew those would be next. I didn't have any more breath. I broke the surface and choked in oxygen. If there were sounds, if I yelled, if the boat was closer, I don't remember. I went back down. The water where you were was all churn. The shapes of the sharks were thrashing, diving, rising, something like a dance. The next time I went for air, you were at the surface, sideways, prone and ragdolling, in the mouth of a shark. But the shark was holding you gently, do you understand? It was holding you like you were made of glass, like you were its child. They brought you straight at me, the shark that was holding you carrying its head up out of the water like a dog. The faces of those things. I won't lie, I shut my eyes as they neared when I was sure they were coming for me too, and if everyone was yelling and crying out as I imagined they were, and if I was thinking anything, I don't remember any of that except the black of my closed eyes and my prayers without a mouth. The sharks never hit. They passed again below around me, wake like a strong wind, and then I opened my eyes. You were there at the boat, clutched to a life preserver. Your father reaching down for you, I remember how angry I was at how slow he went all the time in the world. And I wanted to say, are you a Palhanna County worker? Grab our child, our alive child. And you were coughing, which meant you were breathing. And there was no red cloud in the water. This wasn't just one of those things. Oh, my son. Now we know that none of it was. And this was when I started to believe.
2: Ah, thank you so much. That is one of my favorite passages in the book, which I just enjoyed so much. Um... And in that passage, the character Noah uh, essentially becomes a myth. And after that, it begins to display unexplained healing powers, which is really scary and thrilling for the community and and also makes his differently gifted siblings feel overshadowed. And so much about the book really made me think about how we tell stories individually and collectively. And then I was reading your Bomb Magazine interview with our, our mutual friend, Catherine Savage, in which you said, and I'm quoting here, American history is littered with big man myths which of course made me think of Trump. But most of the powerful change in this country happens when communities take care of each other, build themselves up, communicate, and organize. And in this episode, we're talking about what the Biden administration owes traditionally marginalized voters that turned out for him in just really large numbers, and Black and women voters really foremost on our minds. And wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see those quote-unquote big man myths and the possibility of powerful change via community organizing playing out in our current political narratives?
4: Yeah, yeah, thank you. There's there's a lot in that question, obviously, but I think it will take some time before we can really accurately have a complete political analysis of the outcome of the elections. But certainly, I think it would be impossible not to recognize the incredible organizing work that was done by several groups just in Georgia in particular right to see to see Georgia flip blue for the first time in decades not only to be blue but to have both of the contested senate seats swing swing blue was the result of of a very concerted organized long running effort among Many community organizations to to generate enthusiasm and support from the Black community, and a lot of these organizations were were run by Black women. Of course, the one that's most widely cited and is most visible is Stacey Abrams' group, but there are several others that were involved. I know that Black Futures Lab, which I've um, I I've volunteered for before, had a hand in that as well. They were doing text and and call drives and things like that to get out the vote, both for the presidential election and and the Senate. Uh, Elections. So, you know, certainly at that level, we can see the power of community organizing. But I think one of the places where I think about that the most in the history of the United States is with the, the, you know, the quote unquote civil rights era that we think about in the 60s and 70s when the organizing groups in, in the South, all you know, majority black organizing groups, the Southern Leadership Coalition Conference and the, you know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, those groups were, were operating with Martin Luther King Jr. As, as one of the major figures. And I think the, the place where most people focus all of their attention is on Martin Luther King Jr. or some of the major visible heads of the organization. But there was so much work that was happening in the background with all of the people that were organizing sit-ins and demonstrations and doing the work to like register voters, despite all of the suppression that was in place to keep black people from throughout the South from voting. You know, all of all of that work that happened, I think a lot of people forget about that and they just want to go to the big speeches and the big messages and the big moments that happened. You know, I've, I've seen documentaries and, and read read biographies and thing, re, in, interviews with people that were working on the ground. And sometimes they were like, it was really boring. We were doing a lot of paperwork all the time. It was not that big, like March at the end was the culmination of months of what was otherwise just like a lot of paperwork and phone calls and things like that.
1: The, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the, mo- and the protests over the summer, it just seems like a much less top-down movement. I don't associate like one figure as a leader of that movement. It seems like it's more communitarian.
4: Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. So you've got both of those things, right? You've got the organization organization that happened just for this this election, and you have something like the the Black Lives Matter movement, which is is a movement in the sense that it, it it has kind of outgrown any sort of centralized control in a lot of ways. Different places have their own expressions of it and have their own their own work that they're doing, even while there is some some national organization um, of it, you know. And so I think that that's where you're going to continue to to see or maybe not see the, the the transformations that that happen politically, you know. For me, I think that what is needed in marginalized communities is the same thing that's needed in in I, just about every community. It's just that some are getting it, some that aren't. And it's like, like these basic livelihood necessities, and those are things like having a good education system, having a healthcare system you can count on, living in an environment that's conducive to health, meaning it's a place that's free from air and water pollution, where you can trust that the water you're drinking is safe to drink. These are all very basic things, and I think that most people that you'll talk to from a variety of political spectrums, when it really comes down to it, those are the things they want. And I think that those are more so important for the Black community, but they're important for for a variety of marginalized communities from a variety of racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. And so those are the things I think the Biden administration needs to to focus on and to the extent you can take those further, specifically for the black community, it, it means you should you should that much further invest in those communities, um, making sure that we we truly look at how to reform our education system and really how to unwind a lot of the 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 sort of high-level codified racist policies that back some of these things up, right? Like even even now, like I live in one of the most redlined neighborhoods in in Minneapolis, and it's starting to change, but it's not changing with enough direct investment right like where is the extra where 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 is like the extra work to get home ownership rates up for for black people in a way that allows them to to gather up the wealth that they were denied starting with the gi bill right you know i mean so i could go on and on but it's those basic livelihood measures that are the starting point and to do the actual work not just to say oh we're going to eliminate racist laws but to take the extra step of then having to go back and undo that that harm by investing directly in things that are going to undo it I want to talk a little bit about Hawaii. I did a little Googling. Hawaii is, uh,
1: according to the sources that I looked at, like there's something like 1,400,000 people there, roughly. There's, But the demographics are really interesting. 37% Asian, 24% white, 10% native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, 1% black, and 23% are two or more races or list themselves that way, right? And so You know, you're a mixed race writer writing about mixed race characters in your in your novel. And I was thinking about how the Trump election, you know, was in a way, I feel like a a reaction to the belief that there was this demographic change that was going to put Democrats permanently in power. That was part of the narrative when Trump was getting elected. Right. Like, hey, the country is going to be much more mixed. Right. The country is going to be more mixed. And Hawaii looks like what I think like much more like what the future of our politics is going to be rather than it's
4: past. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. I'm I'm grateful that I was born and raised in in Hawaii because it was a place that inverts that racial dynamic in a way that allowed me to exist as a person without my race ever feeling like it was the the primary The primary determinant of my relationship, not only to just all the parts of the world around me, all the like important institutions, whether that's we're talking again about like schools or police officers or things like that, where every situation you're in, in a lot of parts of the United States, that your race will be the primary determinant of the outcome of your experience of that institution that does not exist in Hawaii, or certainly didn't for me. I want to make sure that I don't speak for the entire island or pretend that my experience is, is necessarily indicative of everybody's experience in the islands. But for me, you know, in Honokaa where I grew up, uh, those demographics are even, I would say, more skewed. I, can't, I can count on my, like, one hand the number of... of my friends or people that I knew in my class that were like white, just purely white or Caucasian, how everyone referred to refer to it. Almost everybody I knew was two or three races there were there were a lot of Pacific Islanders and, and things like that. and growing up that way, I there was never really any sense of my race being an issue. It was like it wasn't even I guess it's the way it must feel for, for white people in other places because for me there it was just like I was I was part of a, of just the culture of the place, you know? And that's such a wonderful feeling. It was such a wonderful gift to receive that. And, and having experienced what I've experienced after that, it's very interesting to realize how important that was in making me somebody that that thinks very differently about the country and my, my place in it than I would have otherwise. So I think that that would be, it would be a great thing for us to continue to see, you know, a, a, an increase in the different different racial compositions that could be possible in any part of the country. And I think that's fantastic and it's a good trend. But I think that we also need to not jump to conclusions about what that means politically because i think even in in parts of texas you saw very or in parts of florida as well you saw very different outcomes among groups of Latinos, for instance, and this is just one of many demographics, then a lot of people expected, right? A lot of people were like, "Oh, as these as these areas become um, more Latino, then we're going to see an increase in democrat, uh, you know, democratic representation." And that wasn't the case in in parts of Texas and parts of Florida and other places.
1: Yeah, well, we we didn't say it. we left the Latinos out of the of the of the headline of this story because we're like that's too complicated. We'll have to talk about that some other time, um, you know. But yes, you're right. Obviously, the 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 vote uh, for their vote in Florida and Texas was was much more for Trump than people would have expected. But then in Arizona, actually, the Latinx vote was was actually really helpful for Biden. So that's a much more complicated story.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think even Kamala Harris is like part of this complication in that, you know, right, people are sort of like, oh, a, a black woman, this is very exciting, but she's a prosecutor. And there's sort of a lot of <laughs> conflict and internal discussion sort of within progressive and liberal political conversation there. I mean, as she's risen in sort of in prominence, it's interesting to, to watch people, some people realize that there are a lot of families like this. There are a lot of American yeah. families that are mixed race and, um, you know, different parts of the family or different races. And that's actually very normal. Do you think mm-hmm. that her being in the limelight like this is going to make people better able to comprehend comple- complex identities, better readers of other Americans?
4: Yeah, I, I don't know to the extent we can talk about, like, better comprehension or better reading, but it certainly makes it more more visible, right? <laughs> I think that that's a starting point, right? Whether that leads necessarily to greater comprehension or, or you know, greater understanding of each other. I think that's secondary, and I think that requires shared experiences. I think it's very easy to to see or be around people of different, you know, whether it's a religion or a race or a gender or all the different sorts of identities that, that are part of who we are. You can be around people from perspectives different as your different than yours, but if you're not interacting, then it might not necessarily lead to any real big difference, right? And so, uh, the increased visibility is the is really important. It's a first, it's a big start. And I was certainly crying when I got to see. I'm probably gonna start crying now <laughs> um, when I got to see Kamala Harris take the oath of office because my daughters were there with me. And I was like, look, do you see this? Do you see what what is possible? Like, this is the first time this has ever happened, right? And so every time those things happen, um, it increases what people believe. When you see yourself represented in important positions of power, it increases your agency. I I completely believe that. And so I think that that's an important outcome of this, regardless of whether or not uh, people that maybe... Aren't yet willing to recognize the the true like racial, gender, and religious, just all the different identity groups that represent the United States and are going to increasingly represent the United States, you know, whether whether her ascending to the position she has changes the perspective of people that are right now threatened or scared or or for whatever reason reject that sort of idea, at least for, you know, at least for those of us for who she represents visually, something that is more like ourselves the power that that brings in terms of of recognizing ourselves in power I, I that that is valuable in and of itself
1: well i'd be curious what you both think about this idea i was thinking about like i don't think people really thought of obama as being a mixed race president he was a black president but he had white family members who live from Kansas, you know? And that just wasn't as much a part of his red identity as Kamala Harris's mixed race qualities are. I think that's the way it seems like to me. I don't know what it seems like to either of you.
2: Well, I'm Tamil. Um, and certainly among people who are Indian American, I mean, my family is um, Lankan Thummel. but even in that community, sort of like she used a Thummel word in a speech and people sort of erupted in excitement. Um, you know, and it was, it's the word for, um, yeah, mother's sister. It's a very specific kinship term. And I was sort of like, wait a second, if I like spoke, um, I mean, I'm, the version of Tamil that I speak is very colloquial. It's, you know, I know the imperative conjugation very well from having been told what to do so repeatedly. And <laughs> And I was like, she probably had a very similar experience. That's kind of wild. Like I could say those things in front of her and she would understand what I was saying. And so I think, you know, I don't know that white people were eager to seize on Barack Obama as an icon of white representation, but South Asians, um, many folks uh, are, I think, eager to see representation and do see it in her. And she's also engaged with, um, she always mentions her mother, um, as she mentions, you know, um, Black women who were influential in her life. Um, And she also always mentions her mother and mentions how her mother um, sought to raise her in the Black community. And I think that a lot of us, um, you know, sort of, there's a narrative of South Asian communities being very rigid and to see an example of a family that isn't, um, which is also something many of us know in our daily experiences was very satisfying. Um, and yeah, like I loved watching her take the oath. Like that was delightful.
4: Yeah. I'm guessing that part of it is maybe because, you know, his, his mixed race, that a component of it is, as I, as I, as you've said, is white, right? So he was, he's mixed race, black and white. And I, you know, I don't really like using those color terms. It's not, I never really like it, but it moves a little bit faster. We get to use a shorthand instead of taking the time to break it down into whatever other, you know, I I use European American and African American sometimes, but for the purposes of shorthanding it, we can just say black and white. You know, I, I think that because the other side of him that wasn't black was white, I think that that's probably part of it, right? That's why it became less of an issue. If he were, as Kamala Harris is, composed of two ethnic groups or ethnic or racial groups that are both still viewed as as minorities or not having the same level of representation, then I think you probably would have seen a celebration of both those parts of him. But I think that the part that was significant that felt particularly powerful was, you know, the black part of him.
1: Well, I celebrate... Uh... Obama's Kansas whiteness, but not enough other people in Kansas do. That's the problem.
4: <laughs> my mom, my mom's, well, oh, she's from Kansas. Yeah, she's from Kansas City, Kansas. My mom's from Kansas City, Kansas. My mom is black and she's from Kansas City, Kansas. So I know plenty about Kansas. <laughs>
1: I'm in Missouri, really. But I mean, you know, it's right across the state. Right, I know, I know, I know. State. State. See, now we're Co- doing this thing. <laughs>
4: um,
1: all right. So your book is rotating first person point of view and your characters, the Flores family, are Filipino and native Hawaiian. You've identified as African-American and European-American, as you were just saying. Um, can you talk about writing from an identity that's not your own and setting on, and setting on that form to tell the story?
4: Yeah, yeah. So I, I get asked this question a lot. Um, so I was born and raised in Hawaii. We've already talked about the ways in which the islands were very powerful for me as part of my identity and gave me the space to be a person in a way that I think I would have experienced totally differently in other parts of the United States. But one of the things that was that was wonderful beyond the fact that I grew around people that were from a variety of backgrounds, typically multiracial, you know, if they were one or two races, it would be something like Filipino or, or Chinese or Japanese or Korean or all the different immigrant groups that have come to Hawaii over the years. And so, you know, those things really informed a lot of my identity because I I grew up in this community that was that was composed of all these different rich elements and one of those was the Native Hawaiian community and in particular You know, the language itself is infused in a lot of the things people talk about. So there are a lot of words from olelo Hawaii, like the the native Hawaiian language that are just used in, in just daily discussions. Like they'll show up on like, you know, like municipal signs when people are saying like, throw away your garbage, you know, to say something like, please kokua, meaning like, you know, pitch in, help out, be part of making this place better. So these words, those words existed as part of like my just daily lexicon as well uh so there was that and then there were the elements of actual native hawaiian culture and history that we studied and that were a big part of my life like you know i i danced hula and learned uh chants and greetings and learned about the history of the the islands prior to the arrival of of european explorers and then later on the colonization and annexation by the united states like those were all things that i learned about and became I became a part of that story because I was living in that same space descended from that part of that history, right? My mother was very important in, in making me understand and celebrate and value the Black part of my life. And, and so was my father, right? But there were also the entire side of his family that's white that I understood and were a part of me that I loved as well. And those things all met, you know, in a confluence of, of these influences from a variety of other cultures with that that Hawaiian element as a center. So writing this this novel, I wanted to write from that place. And I also wanted it to be a novel that was explicitly anti-colonial and spoke to the history of the islands in a way that I hope for some readers, helps them understand the islands in a way differently than they would. And for me, if I'm going to write about the history of the islands and talk about them from an anti-colonial perspective, then it has to, in my opinion, include at its center the people who are the most important players in that story, and that is, you know, the Kanaka Kanaka Maoli Kanaka Oivi, to refer to Native Hawaiians. There, there are several different terms, and it would have been wrong if I wanted to speak to that to not have uh, not have Native Hawaiian people be at the center of that story. And for me, it, there was such a deep resonance with the parallels that I felt. From my black lineage and the history of black people in America, and and so I think that it, I just wrote from the confluence of all of those different things. You know, uh, something I think of and I think about it a lot because uh, I have definitely run into people that are Native Hawaiian that that um, don't hold that same opinion, that feel at some level that what I that me writing from that perspective um, is, is not the right thing to do. And and I think the thing that I come back to besides everything I've already described, um, in the places where, where I feel resonance is, I remember reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, I think back when I was in college. And I remember when he, early in the, early in that autobiography, he's, he talks about when he was in, I think he was in a diner and this was that he had already achieved some level of prominence and a a white woman came into the diner and she said, like, I want to help. I want to be part of this movement. What can I do And he looked her straight in the face and he said nothing, right? He was essentially like, this is not for you. You are not part of this. Uh, And she she left crying, right? And then later on, Malcolm X participates in the Hajj, right? He visits Mecca. And when he's there, he has this incredibly life-changing experience of being around people from a variety of races and cultures and countries and the deep acceptance that they gave to him and the support, you know, and at one point he's living... Somebody that's Muslim that realizes he's there for the Hajj takes him to his house and like gives him his bed and everything and says, here, stay in this, stay in my home. I'm going to go. I have other people I can go stay with. I want you to stay here while you're here. And it completely transformed his idea of what it meant to be part of something bigger than yourself. And he, I, he reflects on that late in the book. And he says that if he could go back to that diner when that woman came in, he would have given her a different answer. And so I think that's part of where I write from as well. There's a space in which we can share among different ethnic groups and represent each other and talk about each other's stories without there being any sense of exploitation or appropriation. And I think it really comes both from a place of authenticity, right? And not operating from a place of ignorance and also not, not operating from a place of appropriation, not not trying to take some aspect of a culture and just use it as a decoration or something for your own personal gain or your own personal interest. And I think if you, if you take those things into consideration, Uh, than art like mine, you know, that stretches identity boundaries as part of its its expression. I think that there's a place for that to exist and to be a part of of that Hajj feeling that Malcolm X had. And I think that's like, you know, I I can never figure out a way to really answer it perfectly. And maybe it's both things at once, you know, I don't don't know. Uh, But I know that I don't think my fiction came alive until I started writing about Hawaii, until I started writing about the islands.
2: Well, I thought that the rotating first person structure, um, I just was reminded... um, of a conversation I had with my friend Marianne Mohanraj, who is also um, Lonkin Thummel and has been on the show. And I remember years ago hearing her say that one of the reasons she had written linked short stories was that it was harder to essentialize her characters. Like it was a way of resisting people expecting her work to be representative. And I hadn't really thought about how that would work in a novel structure. Um, And I felt like in your book, like I saw it work in a novel structure and I just was wondering if that was sort of a form that you hit on in part as a way because even as you're talking right you if we rewind a couple answers you said something and then you said but I want to be careful not to speak for the for all the for all of Hawaii and um, like right that's a very careful caveat, um, which can also be built into the structure of how you present even right you're writing in the first person, but you write in several different first person voices.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, and two of them are women, right? Two of the main characters are women. So I'm writing beyond my age. I'm writing beyond my gender and and, and things like that. Maybe early on, I was really concerned about these things. And I don't think that, that writing it from the rotating first person perspective was any sort of, I don't know, way to sort of subvert representation or maybe it was. I, I'm very, I don't. I am not an I can't do autofiction, right? I don't, I, I, for me, I'm just not interested in my life. My life, I, to me, feels boring. <laughs> just like, man, nobody wants to hear about my
1: life. That's been the
4: story <laughs> so, of my writing career as well. So I, I feel for you there. Yeah. And so, you know, and I was, I'm not interested in like mining my own sort of emotions on the page and trying to understand my own life through writing it in fiction. And I'm not, I'm not marginalizing or belittling that as a, as a function of fiction. I'm just saying that for me, that it's never been a place where I have found my creative, my creative sort of passion lying and so i usually start from a place of trying to get as far away from myself as possible generally speaking and i think that these characters it was partially wanting to do that um but it's partially because i love uh first person perspective books and because this was a novel about a family and when I was writing it, I had no idea what would, if I, if I thought it might be the only novel I ever wrote, because who knew what was going to happen and whether it was going to be successful or what was going to happen. And so I wanted to do the things that I love as a reader. And one of the things I love as a reader is being able to inhabit someone else's consciousness. You can inhabit another time period in a very visceral way. You can have, inhabit totally different, you know, consciousnesses uh, way outside of your identity and in a really powerful way, in my opinion. And I love that as a reader. And so I wanted to do that as a writer. If this was going to be my only shot to write something, I wanted to to pack it with a bunch of different identities and to have the, the joy as a writer of inhabiting these different psyches and trying to build them out richly and truthfully.
2: I should say, we're asking you all these serious questions, but I just want to make sure to say on the record that I think your novel's, among other things, really funny, which is like <laughs> one of the huge joys for me of reading it was that all of these different voices have such wonderful and distinct senses of humor, which I think was like... I don't know. That just was something I enjoyed hugely. Sorry, Whitney. I think I cut you off.
1: No, I was just going to say to bring this all back around to Biden. I mean, you know, the right got, was criticizing him. I heard, saw this on the right for, you know, the diversity of his cabinet picks and all the people he's putting into his government. But really what he's not checking off boxes, he's actually trying to represent constituencies within the party. Right. And, and, and if as America, as we were just talking about, Hawaii becomes more complicated in its racial makeup. There's not going to be a way to write American novels that aren't writing across racial lines because there are different voices in the communities that we live in. My neighborhood has many more people who are not white living in it than, than it did when I was growing up. I'm in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. you know I mean it's just not possible to write yeah. to have a career like John Updike as a white writer anymore or, or any, you know to only write from one community's perspective, I think is going to be increasingly difficult as the future goes on. But we have to stop this now because Sugi has to ask about climate change. We have to talk about that before we run out of time.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, So you've been a climate activist and you have a background in public policy and the Biden administration, just thank God, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, which despite what Ted Cruz has been tweeting is not to please the quote unquote citizens of Paris, (laughs) Um, a real thing that dude said. Um, as he inexplicably remains in the Senate. As climate change is becoming a more urgent problem, what actions do you want the Biden-Harris administration to take next?
4: The thing that is being used by the people on the right that don't want to deal with this problem is that they want, they want to scare people. They want to scare people into thinking that the implications of climate change are that like you're not going to get to drive a truck, you're not going to get to eat meat, everything that you love about your life and everything that makes you feel about you is going to be taken away by the government because of this make-believe problem, right? I mean, that's essentially some version of that, whether they talk about it being make-believe or not, maybe they say it's not as it's not nearly as, as catastrophic as it's being made out to be, and this is a power grab. The tool of that fear is so overwhelming. And then once it is joined with the cultural identity elements, it became so hard to make things happen at a bipartisan level, and it just feeds on itself. And so I think that the first thing that Biden administration needs to do is offer a counter to that by showing people the benefits that can come from a transition to a clean economy. And it could start, for instance, one of the things I spent a lot of time working on at the federal level is a program called a carbon fee and dividend. And what that does is you make polluters pay for the amount of, of greenhouse gas emissions they're putting in the air. You make them pay at the point in which they're pulling those things out of the ground. And that gets passed directly to each household. You give it to a household and you say, here, you know, these large industries are harming you, here is a payout for that. And that becomes part of a policy that makes businesses make different decisions, because all of a sudden, the price of polluting is going up, and it's going up rapidly. And then for households all of the pain that may or may not come about as a result of things being adjusted from a price perspective they have something that offsets that and they see that immediately right Uh, so things like that policies that focus on on ways that it can be beneficial to the people that are being the most harmed by it currently is the way that things are going to be different and there's also incredible business opportunities right like we can we could transform our economy and our our power systems in a way that the rest of the world will want Right? We can be building the next generation industries right here in our country. Those would be good paying jobs. Those could be those could be strong union jobs in which you're manufacturing a new future for the world. And we can be at the center of that. We can be leading the way the same way we did following World War II and, and sort of the industrialization that happened here. We can do it in a new way that's much more regenerative and it's much less of a degenerative industry. I, I believe we can still have the sort of lifestyle that people enjoy in the United States and do that while achieving like a a zero carbon economy. And that's the story isn't told that way. It's always talked to people talk about it as from a perspective of fear and apocalypse and sacrifice. And uh, that's we need to undo that.
2: So you've spoken a little bit about Hawaiian history um, and perspectives. And it it seems to me like they're uniquely relevant to a lot of conversations going on at this moment. As, as I was reading Saviors, I was thinking about racial justice, climate change, which you were just talking about, income inequality. Um, the, the family is working class and is often struggling to make ends meet. The pandemic and um, also questions about how states are represented within the nation as a whole. I kind of was thinking of, you know, I grew up in the D.C. area and there have been all these conversations about that. You know, how does how does statehood happen? What do you hope for? For Hawaii in the next four years, and then also, what should the rest of the country be learning from how Hawaii handles politics and change?
4: Yeah, they have undertaken, like the islands have undertaken, this incredible transformation to start rethinking the way that they can do agriculture. For instance, right there are several there are several facilities that are beginning to scale out more and more of a, a traditionally informed agricultural process for for using the land to to you know, to produce agriculture for the islands, in the islands, for the islands. And and that's even happening at schools. So there are schools in the islands where you have and I think, for instance, there's a, there's a really well-known one in Kauai that the students are working on a farm that is operating with regenerative agricultural practices that are informed by traditional agricultural practices. And the foods that they're growing there are the same foods they're eating in their school. There are so many different initiatives that are happening in the islands that are like that. Uh, there's a, you know, there's an energy cooperative on Kauai that I think is, <sighs> I don't know how much of the total grid that it that it is responsible for, but they have achieved incredibly high levels of of green energy, meaning primarily coming off of solar and hydropower and things like that. And they've even hit points where all of their subscribers at peak output were receiving energy that was like purely solar. These things are all happening in Hawaii and they're happening with, with the input and respect for the native Hawaiian community in lockstep with a partnership with local and state governments in, in, you know, in the islands. And so I, you know, I, I have, there's nothing I need to hope for, for the islands. The islands are, are, are making the right moves, you know, and you're seeing also a really strong political, Expansion of the Native Hawaiian voice, and it's always been there. You know, Native Hawaiians have been fighting and struggling and surviving since the you know since the first ships showed up in the islands. And so I don't want to pretend like something that's happening now is something new. But they've gained even greater visibility and and more power. Readers can go look at your novel,
1: Sharks in the Time of Saviors. We really enjoyed it. We enjoyed talking to you about it and Hawaii. And thank you for being on the show.
4: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
1: That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, while you're doing that, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview and many other previous interviews at our own fiction-slash-non-slash-fiction podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel. We'll provide links to all of this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading, and hello, President Biden and Vice President Harris.